Good afternoon. I am Chrissy Hewitt, and this is Ears on Art, which co-host Stephen DeLuke and I produce here at the studios of KCBX Public Radio. Today our guest is Joe Caracas, who taught for many years at Cal Poly in the architecture department, and in his retirement and even before, he has really enjoyed exploring the world of sculpture. Today, Joe and I talk about his involvement with architecture, and next week, we will discuss his explorations in sculpture. I met up with him at his personally designed home-slash-studio in Cambria. I'm here with Joe Caracas. Good afternoon. Hello. And this is actually our first time focusing on architecture, which I think is very exciting and long overdue because it certainly connects with so many things and certainly connects with all the visual arts. How did you get involved with architecture? It's a kind of a strange story. I I was going into aeroengineering, and you have to take a bunch of preference tests and aptitude tests and so on, and when the psychologist was looking at my stuff, she says, yeah, aeroengineering's okay, but you have an unusual score here. And it had to do with this spatial perception and these shapes. Usually the people who exhibit this go into architecture. I didn't know what it was, architecture. (laughs) I thought they designed columns. And she said, well, why don't you walk down the hall and talk to a psychologist? And took my records with her, went over there. And she says, oh, yeah, very interesting. And she says, go talk to architecture. They're, they are also right down the hall. This was Navy Pier in Chicago. I went there, and I, there's this beautiful young woman at the desk, and I said, can you tell me something about architecture? And she said, oh, yes, come and let me show you. And she, there were drawings up, and she <laughs> effused. It was wonderful. And I looked at this stuff. I was really taken by it. And there were color, black and white, and so on. So... I went back and I got in the line of architecture. That's how I got into architecture, and it was the right move. I mean, I felt that this is what I wanted to do. I had a drafting course, but that was about it. So how old were you, Uh, give or take? uh, 17. This is, you know, right out of high school when you're going to to college, so I was 17. It's great when uh, we can make those decisions sometimes at early ages or have that feel of tug of something, and especially if it comes out of something you didn't even know about. As far as I was concerned, I had no target in particular, except I like airplanes and the stuff that is associated with them. That was it. As far as a professional career, it was nothing. I just would go almost anywhere. When she talked about your having some connection with a spatial kind of sensitivity? Were you aware of that with things that you did as a kid? Uh, When I was in grammar school, I have no idea why they did this. I got a scholarship to the Art Institute in Chicago, but it was too far to go, so that never happened. (laughs) And there was the art that we had, if you want to call it that, uh, was they'd give you what they called uh, manila paper and a crayon, and you scribbled on it. High school, I just had drafting. I had, you know, one year of drafting, and that was it. So you started into school, and it took yeah. hold. Do you, do you want sort of a, an academic trajectory you know, over time? Undergrad architecture, Army, 
couple of years grad architecture, uh, and then a year of loafing, and then I went to Berkeley in city and regional planning. I worked in various firms around, you know, in the Bay Area, and uh, finally a friend of mine, a good friend who I worked for, we had to do an internship in planning. Uh, I met him at a meeting, and he says, uh, are you interested in teaching, Joe? I said, yes, and for me, it meant like in the deep future. <laughs> a couple of days later, I got a note from the dean. He says, we understand you are interested in teaching. We have an appointment for you. Come on down. I, that's what it said. I threw it away. And my wife says, uh, what was that, Joe? And I said, well, it's a letter from Frank, blah, blah, blah. And she says, you have got to go. It's a social obligation. You know, you've known Frank for all these years. So I trundled down here and uh, I talked to Haslin and Ken Schwartz, Paul Neal. The guys that really started this thing up. They told me about the program. They showed me around. After the interview, I drove around town and I said, this is a great place to rear a family and uh, I'm not going to be famous, but I like it. And what year about was that? 1970. That, that's when I, okay. I came on board. Six years before I did. Well, you discovered the same place, right? <laughs> well, it was the only one that discovered me, so I oh. readily accepted it. So. You had every incentive to come here and live like a person. And you believe this, that they write up, this, this is one of the happiest places around it? That's what they say. It's changing, but I'll take it for what it's worth. That's exactly my position on this. You were teaching at Poly. How did that begin to continue to teach you? You know, it had the effect of inducing retrospective thinking in your mind. And that is, when I was going to school, I was thinking certain things in order to get through the program, accomplish Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Making it explicit and operative was a really good thing. It kind of either highlighted or underlined some of the experiences you had in the the past, made you much more aware because you had to provide more substance to the students than what you used on your own. So you had to dig around, find information, examples, you know, to give reality to uh, abstract things, thinking. And what area specifically were you most teaching? I ended up teaching in design, although I taught almost all the courses, a lot of planning courses. Actually, after a while, that was I was in that area the most, but it, the emphasis there was, yes, planning from the point of view of function and organization, but there's another dimension to planning, and that is the quality of the environment essentially visual and that that people must have. Otherwise, you could live in a factory uh, with births in it. Right. So going from the specific type of thing of being the architect, making a plan for the building that you're specifically building, to thinking in that much broader context of the environment and and towns and cities. Cities and and the interrelationship of many complex things. And it's not to say that you solve them, but an awareness of them gives a little direction to your advice, if you will, or to actually the work that you do. Makes sense. 
you know, the system is structured where it can happen, but unfortunately, planners and architects are not elected, so they give advice. <laughs> and your elected officials are the final ones that make it happen or not happen or compromise it somehow, or they fire you. Right. <laughs> what types of concepts or principles became kind of guiding things for you as you would design? You know, architecture, the design part of it is really communication, communication of ideas. And I forgot his first name, but Croce, he said, with regard to aesthetics, beauty, it is a communication, which I never thought of it that way. But you're talking to someone, and if not someone, you're talking to yourself right. about those things. <laughs> And then the qualitative aspects of uh, design, I think, are addressed really well by Kant. And his position was there's a universal definition or experience of beauty. Uh, because you've heard people say, well, you know, that's my opinion. It's art, beauty is subjective. His notion was that it is collective and universal. In other words, you get a thousand people together, there's a lot of things they're going to agree on, and you can't stand back and say, well, it's, it's my opinion, it's subjective, and that just limits it tremendously. But those are pretty much the, the, uh, what I would call simple but powerful guidelines to where you're going. Oh, very powerful, and certainly that collective concept of you know, not just, as you say, being able to dictate, I like it, therefore it is. You know, some response to this is, if it's subjective, therefore I am the ultimate decider of this. I don't know what you get in a situation like that, although it's out there. <laughs> but if you, do, if you accept the notion that lots of other people feel exactly the same way that you do, maybe there is something to that recognition. I believe it goes back to just even that fundamental role in the classroom, that we are putting out some guidelines, some standards that have kind of become a societal definition, but something holds up after a while. What, Principles and elements of design have some structure in there. Well, what I tried to do was to, you know, kind of break down the stereotypes that many people have about art, like you have to be like a camera. It has to look like this, the, all the has-to-be's. So I would give my students assignments that they couldn't use that. For example, one time I said, everybody come in with a stick and a rag. I showed them, you tie the rag on the end of the stick, and here's some ink, and we are going to take one of our students, and he's going to pose, he or she. Now, you are going to try and do that with a stick and a rag, and you can only think black and white. There are no intermediate things. Precision is impossible. You are not trying to be a camera or anything. So you are looking some, at some basic fundamentals, light and dark. You should see some of the stuff I got. It was amazing. They are wonderful. Oh, I bet getting to that whole different kind of freedom about how to approach something which forces you to look differently because you can't stay in your rut. To, to see this enlightenment arrival is really something. I had one student, his efforts were awful and 
they were accented by he didn't want to do it. He felt inadequate. And I, we talked for a while, and I said, well, do you have any hobbies? He said, oh, yeah. He says, I, I raise snakes. Oh, on this assignment, I want you to draw a snake. He did. It was terrific. After that, he, he wasn't constipated by feeling inadequate. I can't do it. I mean, right. I, it's beyond my comprehension and so on. But when he did something he loved, this was really something. It's not that you can solve everything. I've, I've had students whose general mental organization was such that this is the wrong field for them. And I would tell them, if you want to be in design, in architecture, you have got to want to do this more than anything else in the world. Because that's when you jump in. And of course, that changes by the hour. But right. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that worked best for me with regard to the students is a whimsical approach which has you know humor in it it doesn't have to be anchored to reality kind of fly a bit right you don't have to you know <laughs> make something or eat it or anything like it i do this all the time in my work sometimes you do something really uh, zany i wonder how much of your mind retains what you see What's a test? Let's close my eyes and try and do what I was looking at. But I thought, you know, your mind itself is organizing things. You need your eyes, of course. But a blind person who maybe saw at one time could do a nice job of, uh, at least aesthetically. And often seen with touch, which is generating a whole different perception, perhaps, or maybe not. So that would be the interesting well, outcome, I think it, too. It goes across the arts. Helen Keller would, you know, recognize people by touching their face. That is astounding. When you're first thinking about designing, let's say, this place where we're sitting, your studio and living space combined, uh, what kind of things are foremost? Again, it started on a, on a whimsical thing. I wanted it to be an exclamation see that round window there? Mm-hmm. Right above it is a long oblong. So you drive up the seat, you see a big exclamation point. Uh, the other thing is an experience of moving through space. That's a little different than some of the other arts. You move through space and experience them sequentially. So I wanted a variety. You come in and there's a, a definite space, but you can see the connection to the living. This is social and then another different configuration space for the dining and the kitchen and the rest. And so you're also working in a way like uh, prose or music where the words before influence the words after or the notes before influence what is coming. So it becomes a composition in, in effect. And just like notes, it depends on the note that you pick. This space is kind of a nice counterpoint to the entry. And so you experience the spatial dimensions and, and you're trying to control them. That was pretty much the, the guiding thing. There was a, there's a social dimension to it. We're not here all the time. And there's a one private bedroom. Mm-hmm. That's it. We have two lofts. You can sleep there. They are not private. 
And the reason is we don't want people to stay here <laughs> forever. You know, they can, you know, be with us for a day or two or something like that. But the fact that they're not private, it's a clue about right. moving on. And otherwise, you live in San Luis? Well, we live in San Luis. It's a standard tract house. You know, I've done little things on it. It is configured to the way we live, you know, just right. Could get to Polly easily. It was functional, but it was not designed with this idea, like an aesthetic experience of just being in the in the place. Oh, I was the client. It was, I was one of my best clients, right? <laughs> <laughs> and most demanding, I might ask. You know, all the stuff that you see, everything out here, I did, down to the paint and so on. Now I had help with the structure and stuff like that. But, you know, if you're looking at a hammer and nails situation, I was in it. You need to generate the plan, get approval to be able to build it. But from there, there's a lot of room for interior interpretation, right? Well, I sort of had an idea of where, you know, I wanted to go. And and being a bit of a curmudgeon, I didn't buy some of the stuff that is typical of interior decorating. For example... Everything is white. Why is it white? Well, it's white because it defines the space. As soon as you put color on, it redefines it. It may not be along the lines that you want. So the spaces, I wanted them to be like negative uh, sculptural spaces. So I could perceive a cube and so on. And it's not compromised by adjustments to the surface properties. I was trying to do a different thing, and that is a, as much a spatial composition as it was surface decoration. You know, I'm certainly not the first to think that way. You look at Mies van der Rohe's uh, Barcelona Pavilion. That's what it is. How does he articulate space? Uh, the sculpture he uses and, and these subtle proportional divisions, is, it's just marvelous, you know. <laughs> Joe, this has really been interesting, and I think that it certainly speaks to the interdisciplinary and universality of the creative process. The same things are going on, you know, in the minds of a sculptor, a musician, painter, and so on. They just have a different way of uh, expressing. Well, thank you so much. I've really appreciated this. Thank you. Our guest today on Ears on Art has been Joe. Caracas, K-A-U-R-A-K-I-S, a retired Cal Poly architecture professor who now spends a great deal of time creating sculpture. And we'll talk about that next week in part two. This, of course, is the first week of the month, which means Art After Dark on Friday in downtown San Luis Obispo and on Saturday in Paso Robles. For information and details, please go to artsobispo.org. I am Chrissy Hewitt, and on behalf of co-host Stephen DeLuque, as always, want to thank you so much for listening. <laughs>